From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. One of my favorite nights since the start of the pandemic happened last summer. My wife and I went to an outdoor rock concert, and it was the first show we'd seen since the pandemic started. It was a beautiful evening. Two of my favorite bands in the world were playing. I got incredible tickets right at the front. The whole night was pure catharsis and joy. It was a legitimately spiritual experience. Since that night, I've thought a lot about the concert and I've been curious about what makes a quote unquote secular experience like that feel almost religious. So I called up one of my favorite scholars who has thought way more about these intersections than I have. His name is Dr. Tom Bedoin and he teaches theology at Fordham University. Tom edited a book called Secular Music and Sacred Theology back in 2013, and he's written and taught on popular music and spirituality for years. Tom helped me look deep at my experience, and he offers some big picture thoughts about encountering the divine in art. After digging into my experience at the show, we talked about a big project Tom's working on right now about the Pantheon in Rome. You know, that ancient temple that's one of the most incredible buildings in the world. Tom is doing the first large-scale study of the impacts the Pantheon has on its visitors. It was fascinating to hear him talk about the power of that space and what he's hoping to learn through his research. All in all, our conversation was an energizing discussion on art and beauty and liturgy and spirituality. I hope you enjoy it. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Tom Bedoin, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. How are you? Mike, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing pretty well. It's a stormy day here in New York, but uh, I'm happy to be safe and secure and uh, talking about interesting stuff with you. Great. Yeah, I'm so excited to, to have you on. I saw you speak at a conference uh, up at Fordham, like, I don't know, 12 years ago now. And I was like, oh, this guy, this guy's got some interesting takes on stuff. And I want to talk more uh, to him about it. And so we actually did like a print, some kind of like print for an uh, interview for an old blog I used to do like a long time ago, but now they're doing it on the pod for the Jesuits. So that's exciting. Um, I remember that. that. Thanks for following up after all this time. I, I, I know. Yeah. Well, very well. I guess I keep thinking about the same stuff. Maybe that's maybe uh, I need to like broaden my horizons, or maybe uh, there's some good stuff here worth <laughs> going back into. Um, so I want to start by talking about um, rock music, especially uh, live rock music. So this is something I have missed a lot since um, you know before the pandemic, right? Uh, been had been a couple of years before getting to see music live and, and i finally did go to like an outdoor concert at the end of the summer with two bands one i had seen a lot of times and one i had never seen but was excited to see and the experience like was i don't know what you would call it i guess if i had to pick a word it'd be like cathartic like all that time and then just a kind of release but it also was if it, it was a spiritual experience i felt like lifted to like a different plane than like my usual daily life with three young kids so i wanted to like dig in with you to like <laughs> think about like, what are some of the different things that is happening like why is that happening to me and i'm sure it's happened to other people maybe even to you you're at like a great rock show which is not a quote unquote religious place what yeah. are the forces at work that can make that a religious or a spiritual experience oh that is 
a profound question and one that is not easily answered. Uh, part of it depends on, but it's an important question because uh, rock music, hip hop, uh, country, jazz, uh, metal, um, punk, all these genres actually matter to people, to many people. And not only do they matter, they can become places to live and to grow and to change and to be transformed. Uh, and uh, as you say, to conduct you into a different state of experience in a way, right? So uh, it's a really important question about what's going on there and how might we begin to try to make theological sense of it. So. Part of it has to do with, you know, what we think spiritual means. I mean, you use some really interesting words already in just a, a, I don't know, a 20-second opening to your question. You used, it's not a religious space, right? And so, uh, and you used, it's a spiritual experience. Um, and I think probably the word secular is kind of tucked in there somewhere as part of the uh, vocabulary. So... Part of what I would like to do in opening up these questions is first to acknowledge how significant they are because who we become as individuals and as part of our groups is often very entangled in the musics that we enjoy and that we're formed by. Uh, I was just watching the new documentary by Questlove's Summer of Soul about the Harlem uh, Cultural Festival, Music Festival in 1969. And there is no doubt uh, that Sly and the Family Stone, Nina Simone, all those incredible groups that played over those weekends at that cultural festival were part of the audience's life and lives um, and were, were part of how people made sense of their world and part of how people resisted what was wrong with the world and and strove for what could be made right about the world. So music is extremely important for many of us in how we experience our lives and how we know what it means to say yes and to say no to reality. Uh, so um, when, we, when we get an awareness of this, we then call on the terminology like you're calling on, and I do too, um, so to say, well, this is spiritual, yet it's not a religious space. And part of what I would want to do, let's say now speaking, not only as a musician, but also as a theologian, is to say, well, it pays to decelerate ourselves and ask what we mean by that language. So, um, that's not to say we have to vote the language up or down, but just to open it up. Because if we can decelerate and open up the language, then actually we get a richer experience of the event itself, and we be begin to deal more carefully theologically with what that's about. So, um, you know, if we had a few hours, we would do a long conversation and a whole seminar here on, on that one experience you had. But But, you know, in terms of um, let me just lift up a few things and then see get your take on this here. So when we talk about things that are spiritual, 
um, often we are referring to something that is, as you say, like took you out of your everyday life, right? It was an extraordinary experience. It was an elevating experience. And um, that may or may not last, right? That's part of the debate about what it, does spiritual mean it's a momentary thing or it's a lasting thing. Um, does it have to have fruits or effects on your life when you left that show? Or was it a momentary respite from, as you said, being a parent? <laughs> and as a parent, I understand that reference. So um, what I would want to do is to say, do we have a concept of the spiritual that is that does not leave behind materiality, that incorporates our embodied experience, our social experience, um, and how we live our lives outside of that show. So that's what I would want to begin to, if, if we had the time, that's what I would begin to want, and, and, and for your listeners here, I'd want to open up is, is when we use this specialized theological language, as we do in Jesuit heritage institutions and in theological education, we're always calling on the specialized language. And that specialized language will always rule in and rule out certain things. So that's why I want to decelerate for the sake of enriching the experience and helping connect music to how we live our lives. Um, so what was it about your bodily experience, my bodily experience, what was happening? What was it about the bodies of the others you were with? What was it about the sound that you were experiencing? Uh, what was it, and I can tell from the reactions you're remembering all that, right? What was it about uh, the feelings in the room, right? Uh, what, what was it about the memories for you that were evoked? You said it's been a few years since you were there, right, in a live show. So what, 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 what memories are coming back in to help set the stage for what this means? In other words, what you narrated, Mike, in a few seconds is a really rich experience of your emplacement in a musical world that is significant for you and, and elevating and maybe transformative, certainly memorable. And so when we do theology around these kind of experiences, I think it helps. Now I'm showing my bias as a practical theologian. It helps to start to get a rich description of the whole scene that was meaningful, that went into being meaningful for you, and then to ask how that's connected to your life outside of that scene. Um, and um, then we, we could do the same. Now that's not going to diminish talking about a spiritual experience, but it's going to enrich and complicate it. Hmm. And, and then... Um, the same thing with re this is not a religious place that uh, you know there's a language of religion and secularity that you know I use too and that we use in everyday life and that certainly in in scholarship uh, is very charged and very contested now and so we would uh, want to open that up too. what what makes it a non-religious space or what makes it a secular space and and um, what's being included and excluded there and I guess my purpose, so you can see I'm taking like a descriptive approach and also an a question asking approach about this, 
returning us to our experience, but also critically evaluating um, what helped generate those conditions and how it's related to how we live. Part of this being a theological sense-making of the musical experience will mean that it needs to have some reference to theos, the theos of theology. Uh, the theos is often translated in Christian theology, God, of course, the study of God, um, uh, understanding of God. But uh, theos, in fact, can be a broader reference and uh can simply mean a reference to uh, what we take to be, to be ultimately real. Uh, and so um, not everyone is, including some Christians, is entirely comfortable with God language. Uh, but many people are able to talk about their feeling of what is ultimately real for them and what matters most in their lives. So uh, someone standing next to you in the concert may name that a God experience, or they may give it some other name, even though the phenomenology might be overlapping with yours. Uh, so that would be part of theological attention to the musical experience as well, is how, how do we address um, this claiming power that is sensed when it is sensed in a musical experience? Um, and the part of the exciting thing for me would be to, to, to put you and me and others in conversation about that, who are actually there. Mm. Uh, and so not leave us alone in our experience, but to have theology be a, a conversation about how we name that. And then the implications of that naming again for our ordinary lives and for how we conduct ourselves and treat each other. So, so that, that's a, that's a bit of a, a riffing, if you will, on this really rich description you introduced us to. Yeah, I think, I mean, you've encouraged me to think more specifically, like what was it about that experience specifically that contributed to, you know, feeling connected with the divine in a certain way. And my, my wife was there with me and she and I share a similar language. And so I've talked about it since then, even as how great of an experience that was, even though she's not someone who would who loves live music as much as I do, there was still like that shared, I think, experience of, um, again, there's like a gratitude for being able to do this and to be around other people and feeling like, oh, we're around other things we might not have, you know, taken for granted before, right? Feel the same way about church. It's like we just show up and you can be near other people. And like, if we had been watching the concert live on the computer, like that wouldn't have been the same, obviously would not have felt the same while the music itself might've might been able to hear it even better if we had headphones on, for instance, there was something about, the physical being there and the standing for big songs and the dancing for certain songs and the singing along, which this band encourages. I know all the words to all the songs, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and like for me, again, in my own head, since we're not talking during this, right. It's I, I'm making that like, for, since I'm, you know, always kind of swimming in God stuff and God talk um, like, Oh, I, in those moments I can notice like, Oh, this is, what a gift, what a gift from God that music is and this experience is. And I'm, ex you know, learning about God by being here and, and hearing this. Um, and yeah, so I, for me, like that is happening in the moment. So some mm -hmm. of that processing and connecting yeah. is happening. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's interesting too, to think about like similar to liturgy, the way you talked about, like um, when you go back home, when you go back to your daily life, you know, how, how does that shape you? 
um, and to like measure the way that a person or community changes from that experience is to do some theological work too. And uh, yeah, I mean, for us, it's interesting. Like I've, since then, really, we've like busted out the guitar and mm. things with our family more, I feel like, you know, we've been doing more sing-alongs. Part of that is that our kids used to be get very mad if we took out the instruments because they wanted to like bang on the guitar the whole time. And I had to say like, yeah. well, you can take, you can go bang on this drum, but I'm playing the guitar right now. So now they, they're happy to like take their role and we, we do sing-alongs together. Uh -huh. um, so it does feel like, I don't know if it's a direct line from that, but there was some experience of that music that is recharging, rejuvenating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd like to think carries over. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I appreciate you elaborating on that. So that would be, you know, that's part of your, the distinctiveness probably of your experience of that show and others, it might have had other impacts in their lives. So I like collecting those narratives and thinking about, um, there's always something idiosyncratic about our theologies as, as much as, you know, obviously we're social beings and, and, uh, we learn we learn theology and we have musical experience in social environments, but then there's also something that's very specific to your life about where the music fits, uh, and it's very hard to generalize easily about that. So I appreciate you adding that other piece because that then lets us in a little more to your own your own life and how that fits in. Yeah. Have you seen any music since? Like, have you gone back to like a performance? In the past, like handful of months, I have. I've been to a few shows. Yeah, getting back mm -hmm. out there. Was there anything you noticed at any of those experiences that you're like, oh yeah, I kind of forgot about this, or things that you um, that you noticed happening to you or happening there um, mm -hmm. that you, yeah, that you, that, you, that you noticed that struck you? Well, uh, I saw this. I've been to a few shows, and one of them was uh, I saw this amazing guitar player Umdu Mokhtar in Brooklyn and you know I it was I think that was my first show back a few months ago uh, and I, what th there were so many remarkable things about that experience and you mentioned the word gratitude and uh, gratitude for well, probably for a lot of things but but uh, gratitude my, part of my experience of that show is gratitude for music, gratitude for um, gratitude for the shared experience of all these people uh, coming in to this venue and spending several hours together in a fairly vulnerable uh, set display, you know, uh, yelling, calling out some people, uh, even crying their first show back um uh people singing together and and this is all you know corona is not done so this is all also in corona world um people are masked but they're very close together and they had we had to show our vaccination to get into the show so there was there was that for me um and and there was the sense of the miracle that music facilitates of similar to what you're talking about, uh, how it creates its own enclosure 
that's a that's a temporary enclosure uh, where we are all involved in what's unfolding and we're not we're spectators in a way yes but we're also co-creators the audience is the co-creator of what's happening um, in in the back and forth between the artist and the audience even in your your part of the floor or seats or wherever you're standing what's happening there in that moment um, and for me i was sitting behind the uh, sound booth i was standing behind the sound booth because actually i was really nervous to go too far toward the front of the venue given corona so i was kind of hanging toward the back with a friend and we were behind the um the sound booth and and we could just that was a whole other layer to see the audio engineer through the whole show making choices about levels uh you know much as you're doing with this podcast and 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 really managing the environment and the lighting director as well was in front of us and so seeing that happen so you get to see um how all the parts work together and how the experience gets curated through a, an incredible level of technical skill on the part of the musicians, the audio engineer, the lighting designer, and then the joy and vulnerability of the audience as well. So there's something about, let me put it this way. Um, this for me, there's something that music offers about, Hey, I'd like to live here. Couldn't I just live in this space? Uh, and for me to go back to what we we're talking about, about the connection you were making to your ordinary life, that's an important connection is what the, the, um, the, what I experience in terms of communality, generosity, skillfulness, um, vulnerability, uh, power, uh, availability to uh, openness. Let me just put it that way. Openness, that that's, that's a way of being with the world in a musical setting that I would like also to have in my ordinary life as much as possible. So that it's like a training in how to live, if I can put it that way. Um, sure. To be there. So, so that for me, that's what part of what's important. I feel like we could be having a similar conversation about liturgy. And there are clearly ways that liturgy and concerts would have like superficial similarities, right? A group of people with like a shared interest or passion or whatever coming together around something, um, something happening within that moment things that are ritualistic, participatory, physical, and then kind of being sent from there at the return. Do you, in your study, have you thought at all about liturgy and live music and how those things are similar or different? That's another amazing question. Uh, and it's, a, I'll just be brief in my response because I know we could talk about this for a long time, but <laughs> the, the, absolutely, I mean, uh, how do I put this? Christians or in or Catholics in particular, of course, didn't invent liturgy. It, they in uh, liturgical forms are inherited from elsewhere, and then um, 
reconstructed for particular uses. Uh, live music shows did not invent the liturgies that they stage. Um, those are inherited also. And some of them, in fact, are borrowed from religious, what we would now think of as religious events that now inform live shows as well. So there's, there can be, and there is feedback back and forth. And there are some musicians who live in both of those worlds uh, and, and are involved in, let's say, liturgical music uh, in churches, but then are also involved in what we would think of as secular venues or secular music world. So there's a lot of crossover and back and forth. But yeah, th this you're exactly right that it's helpful to think about liturgy as sharing in many similar um, rituals um, uh, as a live music show. And, and could be, should be, I think, susceptible to the same kind of thoughts and questions and wonderings about how liturgy works. There are, of course, some key differences if we're thinking about, let's say, uh, Roman Catholic Mass, for example. There's some key differences in the sense of why people are there um, and what might keep them there. And... Um, this is a long-term community typically that's involved and we're talking about let's say christian liturgy of course many people do drop in and drop out and are just passing through but uh, it's part of a longer term there there have to be a core set of people who are there over the long term and that's part of the mix as well um, and they often set the cues whether it's the minister or the long long-term participants set the cues for what goes on in this space where you don't have that necessarily in a live music show. Um, so I like your idea uh, and I'm not sure anyone has ever done actually a comparative project that I know of that, that looked real seriously at the practices of let's say a Christian liturgy and live music and tried to do a, let's say a comparative theology of the two. I think that could be very instructive. I like your idea. All right. Well, it sounds like I have an assignment here, uh, <laughs> something else to work on. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, there are differences too, as you're saying, like, yeah, there are that community that's there. Then they also have those obligations to each other and like a, a worshiping community that is a good one when people know each other and know that what the needs are and, and take yes. care of them. There yes. are those, those kind of obligations though. I, and obviously like what we think is happening like at liturgy is unique um, from like a Catholic view. So like there's something deep happening there, which might be happening in a related way at a rock show, but without the transubstantiation. But like, I was thinking about like uh, I interviewed um, this musician, Craig Finn, who's the lead singer of the, the band, the hold steady. And they talked about, he talked about how like they don't do big tours anymore. They'll do like a residency. They'll play like five nights in a row in the same city. Yeah. And his like favorite part of that is watching people come to like all five shows or a few of them mm -hmm. and then like meet each other. And then he could tell they're like making dinner plans and they're, they're hanging out and that there is like this, these seeds of these communities growing. Uh, I can imagine people following bands around on tour, like, you know, the grateful dead or something. That's uh, absolutely true. 
that that absolutely happens is 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 our artists and genres um form their own communities that's right and that 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 and that exists of course not just in the concert venue but online right um, and the rise of the internet has been a whole uh, boost a huge boost to the, the formation and sustenance of music communities but you know can i say to your point this is a larger conversation probably but <laughs> but talking about you know um the differences between let's say a christian liturgy slash roman catholic mass versus a live music uh, event um let's say a live music event with with staged staged well um you know it's it's a question i i think um we shouldn't move too quickly to saying well this is about this and this is about this uh because uh, when in Christian theology, when we're talking about what we call God, um, we are usually saying that this God is the God of all reality or God with all reality or God as all reality. So um, making a real quick distinction between what happens in, let's say, a sacred space and a secular space is problematized by thinking about God in that way um and so this is a question that you know this is a jesuit podcast and to quote or to reference the, the jesuit theologian carl rahner um there's a way in which one could think about roman catholic liturgy as um, a specification of a larger liturgical experience that human beings have that is to, a, a ritual encounter with god in the world in their lives and that's part of what the mass condenses through the ordinary elements bread wine through ordinary gestures sign of peace procession um, th these kind of things um, they they condense what's already going on in ordinary life um, and the, a, a ritual encounter with god that's already there is is condensed and available and that's one way of thinking about a re the relationship between the two so you opened up a real rich terrain there oh yeah this is gonna like we're gonna end up needing like a multi-part series to just i have so many questions <laughs> about like sentences and uh you know other things i do think for me like thinking about liturgy is like less important about like what we're doing and more important like thinking about like what God is doing and that it's like mm. we're kind of meeting God there, but like responding to God's work. And that's like the deeper part of the, of liturgy is that we believe that there's, you know, God is at work that way. And then again, it's our response to that work. And I can see that also, you know, applying in those other places, which I think also a very Ignatian, right? The sense that like the Lord is always at work. The Holy spirit is at work. It's just like about noticing and like, we're not very good always at, at noticing. Um, and so for me, I find that like, if I'm at a show, if I'm like, I don't know, in desolation, to use another Ignatian word, if I'm at a show and have that experience, that mountaintop experience, and then I leave that like, I, I'm better at noticing, I feel like for at least a little while, like yeah. some of the fruits of that show that like, oh, and the, those moments, or I'll start listening to that, the band I saw, I'll listen to them a bunch more and like just mm -hmm. on my commute or something. And then mm -hmm. we'll pay attention to like what's going on in the music and what I love about it and feel like I'm noticing more. Uh, so it was another thing that i hope 
both of those, you know, experiences, those, any of those liturgical small L experiences can hopefully help us to do. Can, can I follow up on that? Oh, please. I mean, I You're the know. guest. You can do whatever you want. Well, no, I, I want to respect our time, but, but just on this, the Ignatian piece, because uh, it's obviously a key theme of this podcast and you're doing a really very helpful job of, of making those attachments to the conversation as we're going through. Um, and speaking as someone uh, who's been in uh, Jesuit theological education for 25 years, uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about um, what this means to have this Ignatian perspective on things. And, and it, for example, on music, as you're just talking about, or, or, or on Christian liturgy. Uh, and the way I would say it, and you may or may not agree, it'd be interesting to talk about, the way I would say it is to treat that Ignatian charge, the God in all things um, charge, as in a pluralistic world, as a hypothesis, as a working hypothesis. Um, and we do that, I think, out of a concern not to recolonize other people uh, with Christian experience, and in this case, with a very particular kind of Christian experience, an Ignatian one. So um, saying God in all things um, is something that can guide us, but that should not run over the experience of the other. Uh, and in other words, it should open us to the curiosity of what's actually happening here. Uh, and that's why I say the nation charge should be a, a working hypothesis that has to be tested, uh, experimented with again and again and again and again. Otherwise, I think there's a danger that we kind of know, we know in advance already what's coming uh, a little too much, and we're not really learning from the other, uh, and we're not really open to what the Jesuit heritage also values, as you know, which is interreligious, uh, and I would add inter, intersecular uh, experience. So that would be my note on what you had to say, but I, I wonder what you think. Yeah, I've never thought of it that way before. Um, as you said, we were talking earlier, like, so I'm at that rock show, right? And I have my wife next to me and I generally have a, a sense of how she mm. views the world and thinks about things, but there's people all around us and and you might ask them, did you experience God in this? And I was like, no, what are you talking about? I don't believe in God. Like, this is this is my church. Uh, and the lead singer mm -hmm. of the band I've seen has said in interviews, like, I think a rock show is like what church should be. Like, I've never experienced it in church, but I feel like this is what church should be. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, there obviously would be. And I, I would then say, like, well, I mean, like, I, I think there's pro probably baked in there a little ego would be like, well, I. I, you know, I've studied this, right? Like, I know, I know what's going on here. Uh, this is, this is a sacramental experience. Um, and we're God coming to us through this moment. Uh, so even if you're not noticing God is there and hopefully you will notice sometime. Um, so yeah, I think baked into that can be some of that presumption. Um, but I also want to believe that like, no, like there's some truth claims here that I think are, are true. Um, and 
that like I'm very comfortable with being with other people who might not be experiencing that, but like that I would still like stand by. No, like they're there, 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 God is here, and I can believe that without it, um, you know, uh, colonizing or denigrating your experience. But, but I think as even as I'm unpacking that, you see some of the, um, you know, the, the ego or the presumption that's kind of baked into that. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, you're really opening it up further, which I appreciate. So this is it's a deep topic, and it's. Uh, frankly, not one that is elaborated well enough, I think, in uh, theological education in Jesuit heritage institutions. So I think we have further to go on on talking about this uh, in a, a decolonizing world. What does this imply for how we relate when we when we bring our specialized language and our, our frameworks for God into a, a public, situation like that, which is unavoidable, not saying one shouldn't, but then then uh, what are the ways by which we go forward um, in, in honoring our heritage and at the same time uh, treating the heritage of the other interculturally as equally uh, worthy of honor. So it, these are not easily resolved. Sure. That actually, to me, is a, a segue to the other stuff I wanted to ask you about. Just I understand, too, that our time is growing short, but that you're working on a, a project called The Art of the Pantheon, Learning from Visitors about the, the Pantheon building in Rome. Talk about a place that has a lot of different levels of things going on in terms of the people <laughs> who are there and they're experiencing it. The space itself, like when I went for the first time a couple of years ago, I didn't know it was like a Catholic church now. I thought it was still like this, this like, you know, the thing from the ancient Romans and wow, what a cool building. Oh, wait, wait, what are all these like Christian images doing here? I'm surprised mm. to see that. Um, yeah, talking to a guy from Colorado in line, you know, going in just the mob of people. Yeah, anyway, there's a lot going on there as like a building. And so just just curious, just talk, tell us a little bit about uh, what this project is and, and how you came to be pursuing it. I love your description. You're really great at these short descriptions that open up a, a whole world for investigation. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, there's. I love how you put it. There's a lot of levels going on in the Pantheon. So in a nutshell, uh, I have a grant from the Templeton Religion Trust to study visitor experience in the Pantheon. And to I'm doing this for the next two years. Uh, and that's the project that you mentioned called the Art of the Pantheon, Learning from Visitors. And let me just summarize very briefly the project and then we can open it up more if we need to so the the project is basically i'm going to be conducting a survey that will be online and it will run from uh late spring of 2022 through late summer or early fall of 2022 and it will be open to anyone who has ever visited the pantheon and it will be for them to share their memories and their experience uh, of their visit now, what am I going to do with these results of this survey? Uh, I am going to, I'm very interested in what, for all the reasons you mentioned, in what the Pantheon means as this complicated space that is a Christian basilica, Roman Catholic basilica, and has been so since uh, for about 1400 years, <laughs> for about 1400 years. But 
For the 600 years before that, back to around the year 115 or so, it was a Roman temple, what we would now call a pagan temple, um, with statues of the gods collected by Rome around the rotunda. Uh, and even the space itself uh, built to allow the sun to come right in through the ceiling for certain solar cosmological theological purposes. Uh, not only the sun, of course, but also rain, uh, air, and um, occasionally snow comes in into the building. That, that was all part of an ancient theology that belonged to what we now think of as Roman religion. Uh, and then was later taken over, the space was, by the Roman Catholic Church and made into a, a, a church. But uh, that space is so rich and multi-layered, as you say, I have been fascinated for a long time with what people make of their experience there. And you just, in your little narration, talked about your own little journey of experience that you went through while you were there. And so I'm with the results of this survey, I'm going to be uh, comparing the results of the survey to the Catholic leadership's intentions for ministry in the space. There is a, a team of Catholic priests called the Canonici who administer the space, and they're responsible for the ministry that happens there. Now, the space draws people from all over the world. Uh, millions and millions of people, when we're not in Corona time, millions and millions of people visit the Pantheon every year. Many of them, of course, not Catholic, many of them not Christian, uh, but, but speaking many different languages and from many corners of the globe. And they're all in there. Uh, and I'm curious about what they make of that from diverse perspectives uh, and how we relate what people actually make of it to the ministerial intentions in the space. And it turns out, and I do this because as a practical theologian, I'm interested in how uh, ritual spaces work, in how Christian spaces work, in how public spaces work uh, in, in spiritually significant ways. So um, as you know, you can have your ministerial intentions we were just talking about mass earlier, um, and you can curate a particular um, experience for people, and then people are going to have their own experience, and then people are going to use or not use what you've provided. People are going to enjoy or not enjoy what you've selected. Um, people are going to ask their own questions and have their own experience and get their information from other sources maybe than the one that you intend. That's all very interesting to me uh, because that all goes into what counts as real as people go through it. So um, that's one thing is to compare visitors' reports of their experience with Catholic intentions for the space. And then the other conversation to have is to compare the visitors' experience with what architectural scholars say the space means and how it works. Because the Pantheon is the most influential building in all of Western architecture. Uh, and it is uh, one of the most revered buildings in the world by architects. And it has been studied a lot and commented on a lot. Um, and so there are these various 
theories in architectural studies about what the space is about, why it works the way it does, and the effect it has on people. So uh, I am going to bring architects into the conversation as well. So it's really a trialogue between Catholic leadership, architects, and visitors about what does this space mean and how does it work? Uh, now, I can already anticipate a question you might raise is, well, couldn't we also do this just in quote unquote regular churches? <laughs> and I would say, yes, that might be a good idea uh, to get at how um, churches that are not as monumental as the Pantheon, how they work as well. But the Pantheon invites it to my mind because it is such an, an, as I would put it, an ambiguously signified space. It does not announce it's a church from the outside, as you yourself said. Many people walk through it and still don't think of it as a church. Um, some people immediately experience it as a church and respond in church-like ways. Sit down to pray uh, or make the sign of the cross or, or um, uh, any of uh, many other ritual actions. Um, some people see it as a museum. Some people treat it as a mausoleum. There are kings buried there, uh, Italian kings. Um, uh, Raphael, the artist, is buried there. Some people see it as a pilgrimage site for Raphael. Uh, so some see it as a, a, as a um, testimony to ancient Rome um, because the same building is still intact 1900 plus years later. So you know, it's, it's got these multiple levels, as, as you said, so it's, it's rich for study. And the last point I make is, I think it's also really important because the Christian church today finds itself necessarily in a global world, um, where global people come through churches, um, and if they don't come through, they are connected to the people who are there in churches. So the church is a global phenomenon, even if it is the most remote church you can imagine. And so what is the mission of the church in a global, in a religiously pluralistic world, in a secularly pluralistic world? I think the Pantheon is an amazing greenhouse for that question. So that's why I'm also rather obsessed with it. Yeah, that's well, there's a lot there's a lot going on there and a, a lot to learn from again that that one space as, as you're describing. Do you remember your first time ever going there? Yes, 2004. I was with my wife uh, and she was pregnant with our daughter and we were walking around Rome and I uh, I didn't know about it. I don't know why I didn't know about it. But um, a lot of people don't know about it as a matter of fact. A lot of people who go through it turns out, I think, go through it just because they run into it. Sure. Um, so I remember turning the corner on the northwestern side of the Piazza della Rotonda, which is the open space in front of it, and just being astounded by what I saw. And I couldn't really, I thought, what in the world is this? What What is this building? And it really uh, arrested my attention, kind of like... Uh, it's not dissimilar from musical experiences I had as an adolescent, you know, maybe you did too with, with something that really claims your attention. You think, Oh my, what in the world? I have to really get, get involved in this. <laughs> so music did the same for me, but, but Pantheon did too. And I was just drawn in and kind of overwhelmed 
uh, with this world that it presented and, and it really got my imagination. It was very stirring to me and I've never let go of it since then. Hmm. Have you spent like, I, when I was there, it again, felt like you're kind of being herded through. Have yeah. you been able to ever spend like a good amount of time there kind of watching some of this stuff happen? Oh, you bet. Yeah, it, it, it can be during the high season. Uh, it, it can be really tough because you're in a long line and then you get in there and then sometimes the guards want to move you along. Mm -hmm. And even now during Corona, they have the perimeter roped off. So you have to go in a circle in this particular way. You can't just mm -hmm. wander around. Um, so, you know, it's it, it, sometimes your experience can be a little bit or a lot curtailed depending on what happens. You really need, ideally, I think, an open open space and, and a lot less people in there to be able to take it in. But, you know, we have what we have. So, yeah, I, to answer your question, I have spent a lot of time in there. And uh, as the lead up to this stage of the project, I've spent about 140, 150 hours in the space just observing. Hmm. Uh, over the last few years, I've made a lot of trips over there, spent a lot of time there. Uh, and I've done what we call in research participant observation, noticing uh, what what the space is like um, and how people interact with the space. And on the porch in the rotunda out front, um, doing uh, taking a ton of pictures making some videos, doing audio recordings as you're doing now, you know, just really documenting what's this space like and what do people do here? So yeah, I have spent a whole lot of time there. And then when I take a break from being inside, I go sit outside and have, uh, you know, a nice treat there in the piazza at one of the many cafes. So it's a nice existence when I can have it. Sure. You think about, I've heard stories about churches, even here in the U S like say a cathedral, you know, in a city that is striking, visually striking. And mm -hmm. they're thinking about how do we like engage the community? Our, our numbers are shrinking. We're not having as many people to mass. Is there a way to capture people maybe to pique their interest? And some are like using, like leaning into beauty. Like this is a beautiful space. Come see the space. We'll open it up. We'll like have a tour or like a guide to kind of show you some of the art and the, this idea, I think, what is it, Dorothy Day, like to kind of crib from Dostoevsky that beauty will save the world? Or is it Tolstoy? Mm. I don't remember one of her Russians she liked. But um, the sense that, like, let's use what we have, which is some of these beautiful spaces, uh, as a way of, like, hooking people. And then maybe they'll come back to see what we're all about. There's an interesting theory. So, be, yeah, to see, like, are, I wonder if the, the folks who are there, the official folks, are kind of trying to th see things that way or uh, using kind of beauty as an evangelizing tool. Well, that is, you are exactly right. You are 100% right that, that the Catholic leaders of the Pantheon have two different phrases that they use. And they're very explicit about this. Um, and one of them is what they call art faith. So in other words, that for them, the art of the Pantheon, which I think includes the architecture and the art objects inside, the statues, uh, the altar, the, the liturgical objects, um, all of that, the paintings, um, the, that, that, the, that the art is what can conduct into a deeper and more substantial faith. So they do talk about art faith in the Pantheon, mm -hmm. they use that phrase. 
And they also use the phrase uh, da turista a pellegrino, from tourist to pilgrim. So they have thought about how can we set the space to encourage visitors to have their own pilgrimage here and to have a spiritually meaningful experience in this space from whatever their starting point is. So this is precisely to your point that, that they're thinking about that. And I, I know that part of their interest in my research is that I can help them kind of make those connections more uh, if we do this project well. Sure. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. I've been thinking about tourists versus pilgrims recently or doing a, another podcast about the Jesuit pilgrimage when young Jesuits are, or new Jesuits are sent out for 30 days on a, what they call a pilgrimage hmm. after uh, Ignatius's own experiences of a pilgrimage. And thinking of those as like kind of different things, right? Like that I'm coming, I'm going somewhere as a tourist or like I could be a pilgrim, but like kind of requ requires more intention, maybe from even from my planning process. But the sense that like people are wandering through, like maybe we can convert them from tourist to pilgrim within the 20 minutes or the hour or whatever it is in that moment. Uh, that's a, yeah, it's uh, really interesting. I'm, I wonder if you'll get some of those uh, responses in your survey, people who went in one way and came out another and could like note it. Um, I, I, that's a good question. I don't know. We're going to try to construct the survey and to solicit, you know, people's experiential reports. Um, but even if, even if it's not an immediate change, um, you know, it depends on what, depends on what educating our senses means. And it depends on what transformation means. Some, some, and maybe some of the most important transformations in our lives are slow burning and long lasting. Um, sure. and so, um, you know, the, the achievement of maturity and of adulthood and even of old age is something that is a, a long process. Uh, and so, uh, so too, uh, is, I think the encounter with significant spaces o only over time, do you realize, um, the residue that it has left? Uh, so, so yeah, I bet some people will report my mind was changed, my eyes were open, and other people may report, now we're getting into hypotheses here, Mike, you and me, this is part of what we do in research. Other people may report, um, well, five, 10, 15, 50 years later, I find myself still thinking about hmm. or valuing this, you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, this sounds exciting and be, uh, will we be able to, when will we be able to see something, uh, from this? Do you think this will be a few years yet though, before, uh, anything is, uh, yeah. presented for public consumption? Thank you for asking. As a matter of fact, we are going to open by the end of this year. This is October. We're recording this in October, 2021, whenever this comes out, uh, in the feed, I'm not sure, but by late uh, 2021, if people uh, just Google me or at me at Fordham, you'll find that I have we have set up an entire suite of social media for this project. And there will be a website, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and more where people can learn about the project, send in their feedback, uh, learn more about the Pantheon. There's a whole public theological education side of this. So this is my way of using uh, Jesuit heritage education for uh, the public to try to really provide for the public um, 
some education around the Pantheon. So we're going to have a lot of ways that people can engage the project. And all you have to do is, is look me up at Fordham and you'll see links to that. Those yeah, that's great. Yeah. And we'll, we'll link to uh, your site in the, the show notes and then keep people posted uh, through our social media when, when that uh, comes out, because yeah, so that, that'd be fun. Oh yeah, for sure. We could go on, as you were saying a few times, we could go on for another 20 episodes. Um, so we'll have to have you back sometime, but uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and digging into these big topics. So I'm sure I'll be uh, reflecting on them over lunch I'm about to have. So, uh, <laughs> and beyond, you never know, as you say, it's a years long process of uh, discovery and reflection when you start thinking about music and God and important spaces. And um, so there's a lot to, to take in. So I really appreciate that. And for, um, yeah, for all you do and yeah, blessings on, on that project and the rest of your work. Mike, this has been a, such an exciting conversation, and you're a wonderful interlocutor. Uh, oh, great. Well, thank so, you. So thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And I learned things also about what matters to me by being in conversation, including with you. So I really appreciate that. And I look forward to this being up and, and sharing it with my students and colleagues, too. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>